Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. So I am going to continue the conversation that we've been having about justice and law enforcement and policing and what fairness looks like. And I'm continuing it today with a very special guest. She is a 19-year veteran of the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department. She is a police captain in that department. And she is also my cousin. Welcome, Captain Marissa Barnes. Welcome to the podcast, Captain Barnes. Thank you. You are Commander of the Employment Unit, Acting Major of the Human Resources Division. So first things first, you clearly have a hand in hiring. Tell us what you think makes for a good police officer. Obviously, you have to be able to communicate effectively. I think you need the ability to be compassionate and empathetic because you're going to be dealing with folks uh, who really need some of that. Obviously, be able to resolve conflict, uh, be able to adapt to different situations quickly, make quick decisions, think critically about things and to work, be able to work as a team. A lot of the attention around police reform these days, Marissa, as you certainly know, has focused on whether or not police officers uh, are deployed to situations where you don't really need them, and uh, also on whether or not they are inclined to escalate rather than de-escalate when they arrive on the scene. Do you think that uh, the training, and I know you're only speaking about the training in your department at KCPD, but do you feel like your colleagues, and especially your colleagues who are out on the street in high pressure situations, are they trained to to de-escalate? Are there things that you can teach officers to do? Absolutely. I think we've always been trained to de-escalate. I don't, I just don't think it was called de-escalation. Um, that's a very specific thing. Like when we show up on the scene where we're called, our goal is to solve whatever problem that we've been called there to handle. And no one wants to see it escalate. They used to call it verbal judo, trying to talk people down, especially when they're, they're upset about different situations. You talked a little bit about us being called to places where we really aren't needed. Um, we call those civil matters. So a law hasn't been broken, um, but they call the police. And I think we go in a lot of situations where we shouldn't be there because no laws have been broken, but people can't, um, they can't find a way to solve their whatever issue it is that they're having. Are you all deployed in schools? You know, in Los Angeles, it's very controversial. Um, and in other jurisdictions where it's controversial to have police officers in high schools, middle schools, uh, maybe even in some elementary schools these days. Do your colleagues, are, are they ever deployed to schools? Absolutely. Uh, we call what them, do you think of? We call them school resource officers. Um, I think it's a great thing. Uh, with the rise in school shootings and violence at schools, it, one, it serves as a deterrent. Um, if you know that there's an officer there, maybe someone will think twice about doing something that they shouldn't. I also see it as a community service. I mean, what better way for kids to get to know about law enforcement um, and getting to know a police officer if they have questions they can ask and seeing that in a positive light 
not, uh, you know, the only contact they have is when an officer is called in a bad situation. They get to know them as people. Uh, so I think I think it builds great relationships. What do you say to those, Marissa, who say that it creates a culture in a school where you're criminalizing kids? Um, and, and I know you feel this very personally because you're the mother to um, a young uh, African-American uh, man, boy. He's a boy. Mm -hmm. He's only 13. He's a little boy. Yes, he is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, do you worry that the presence of police officers in schools makes these kids feel like they're criminals? Because a lot of folks say that that's the energy that they get. They're not necessarily feeling, you know, there's some criticism that the police officers there aren't necessarily making the students, you know, they aren't there as big brothers, big sisters, guardians. They are there as, you know, kind of occupiers. There are those who say that. How do you respond to that criticism? Well, I can only speak for my department. And I know that there's like, there's a selection process that you have to go through to become a school resource officer. It's not just something that anyone does. And you have to really want to do it. Officers are being put into schools and they don't want to be. I mean, I can't speak for that state of mind, but I would like to think that they would try to make the best of it. Now, I think that would be easier in probably the elementary or the middle schools, because by the time you get to high school, you know, there's opinions formed. They may have already had interactions with police officers. So you come in kind of on a behind the curve and trying to create positive relationships. And so you can only do so much. I think it's better to have them than to not just because of the violence that we see today. So let's kind of extrapolate and kind of talk about the perception of police officers in the larger community, because just like in schools, there are those who feel that the, a police presence criminalizes kids. There certainly has been um, a lot of criticism and, uh, and a good amount of documentation. Like, I don't think this is all made up mm -hmm. that um, African-American communities are policed differently. They are, uh, they are policed more heavily. They are policed less respectfully. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you say about those criticisms more broadly? And again, um, I know you are one police captain and one police department and one part of America. You are also my cousin. So thank <laughs> you uh, for being here. Right. Um, but uh, I mean, to, you know, what's your response to that? Because, you know, you've heard that you've seen it. We've talked about it offline. Yeah, absolutely. Those are valid concerns. I mean, we look through history, um, not just recent history, but, you know, as far back as policing goes. And it's just they police don't have a good reputation when it comes to policing the black community. The way around that, I think is we have to educate. We have to educate our officers. Uh, it's it's really hard to police people that you don't you know nothing about. So I think cultural diversity. But I also think um, having officers out in the community, amongst the community, reaching out, getting to know, you know, we we have little areas that we patrol you know, get out and talk to people, get to know who they are. Um, so next time you're called there, you have a little background on the people and you can, you know, you can kind of connect with them. But if you don't do anything to get to know the people that you're serving, we will continue to have issues. Has it been harder to do that since George Floyd's death and the protests surrounding that? Has it been harder to get to know the community? Yes and no. 
you still have those who respect the fact that we are law enforcement and we have a job to do. They just want to be treated, you know, like I would treat anybody else. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It definitely uh, makes it harder to break down those barriers. But I think we have to keep trying. We can't just give up. And often my conversation uh, to people in the community is come be a part of the solution. I know that's why I joined. Be the change you want to see. No matter how much flack you get, one, there's still people that respect us and support us and know that most of us are out there doing, you know, we're being servants to the community. That's why we're there. With the others, we just have to, I mean, we just have to build that trust back. And all we can do that, all we can do is uh, by action, lead by example, uh, and show them that we're here for the right reasons. Tell people, Marissa, what it was like for you watching that video. You are a member of law enforcement. You are an African-American woman. You are the mother to a, a young African-American boy. What was it like seeing someone in a uniform that you have spent 19 years of your life either in and respecting and defending? What was it like seeing someone in that uniform uh, kill somebody? right in front of our very eyes under those circumstances? Um, it was really hard and it was infuriating. Um, I'm also a defensive tactics instructor. I just looked at that video and there's so many other things that could have been done there. Seeing the nonchalant way that things went down with the officer, it was just infuriating. It, it really was. And, you know, it brought me to tears. You said you're a defensive tactics coordinator. What would you have done? So let's just say that you're standing in Derek uh, Chauvin's shoes. You are called to the scene under the circumstances under which he was called. How would you have handled that arrest differently? Even if I was there and it led to the point where he was on the ground and we had him handcuffed, in our training, we are taught as soon as they are uh, under control and um, meaning handcuffed, uh, we roll them to the side so that they can breathe, because if not, you know, by them laying on the ground, especially if you just had a fight with them, right, and their heart's racing and they're on the ground, we get off of them immediately so that their lungs can expand and they can breathe. And then we roll them on their side. And then there's ways of controlling someone from that position. And then we wait for the ambulance or the patrol wagon or however we're going to whatever we're going to do with that person after that. Your point is, is that there are several non-lethal tactics that could have been used. And, and those were points that have been made by yeah. others too. What did you think about the, or do you think about the defund the police movement? Um, it had a lot of steam once upon a time. It seems to have had less steam now. I know that in some jurisdictions where, or at least one jurisdiction uh, that I know of in Minneapolis, where they put to the ballot, replacing, I think, the police department or at least portions of it with the Department of Public Safety, voters rejected that. But in the main, I think that there are still those who believe that policing needs to be reimagined very dramatically uh, as somebody who is <laughs> in the uniform, on the ground, in the department, and taking the calls uh, when when people need help. What's your response to that? So, so I definitely don't think police uh, need to be funded. Um, I certainly understand the thought behind it. Do we need to funnel more, more money into mental health, so other social services that help with the homeless, 
education, absolutely. But I don't think we need to take money from the police. For years, those areas have been cut and they continue to cut every year to where the amount of mental illness that we see that goes untreated is absolutely insane. Do I think those programs need more money? Absolutely. But if you take it from police, and this comes from, you know, we're dealing with budget cuts now. I wouldn't say anybody was trying to defund us. It's just the times we're in. So we're short on uh, manpower. Our equipment doesn't work half the time. The training that we need so desperately, uh, you know, to enact for us to be able to change and, and do any kind of police reform, we have to continue to train. We can't just train in the academy and then leave and then come back for a couple of hours of inserts and expect people to be on their A game. It's, it's just not going to happen. So we need to c- be able to continue to go to training, brush up on our skills, learn new skills. But we can't do that. Uh, and we haven't been able to for a long time in my department because money is tight. So instead of going to a training that you know could teach me how to de-escalate a situation, they're spending it on a new police car because our cars are, you know, hitting it in the life cycle. Um, so you're right. I think uh, defund the police, it means different things to different people, but I, I absolutely understand where they're coming from with that. We certainly don't get billions. Um, I know there are some bigger police departments that have a lot of money, but there's a lot that goes into policing and it's not just salaries and cars. And I mean, there's There's a ton of stuff that makes us, makes our job do what we do. What's the thing that you want people, Marissa, to understand? Uh, And specifically those who think that police departments uh, are bloated, have resources that could be better used in, uh, in other parts of the community. What is something that you would like advocates of defunding and again, different people mean different things Mm -hmm. by that, but what's something you'd like them to know? I would like them to know that we want the same thing. We want violence to stop in our communities. We want to solve social issues. My dream team would be like if I was an officer out on the street, if I could have a social worker with me, if I could have a behavioral therapist with me, somebody that specializes in conflict resolution, like those types of things, we go in, we make sure the scene is safe. And then, oh, it's just a disturbance because you two are disagreeing about something. Great. I've got somebody for you. Um, I mean, I think that would be great. We really do want to help. We really, we care about the homeless. We care about education. We care about all those things, but we also think a safe community is needed for all those things to thrive. And if we defund the police, the criminals will just have a heyday. And I think, I think some places have seen that where they either tried to cut the budget or did cut the budget and things just started to get out of control. And so then they start to flood the the streets with police again to try to get it back under control. I think we have to find a happy medium somewhere. seems hard to be able to do that in an environment where, you know, Marissa, I sometimes feel like people, when they're having this conversation about policing, they are talking sound bites and making cartoons of folks on the other side. It's really, um, on top of the fact that you're my cousin, <laughs> um, it's part of why I wanted you to be a part of this conversation. I mean, I've listened to people describe law enforcement in ways that are upsetting to me because I think that 
they're a little too unilateral. And I've listened to members of law enforcement or people who are defenders of law enforcement talk about communities with valid criticisms about police officers in really uh, disrespectful, cartoonish ways. You kind of see all of that from a multitude of perspectives. Is it harder for you, do you think, being an African-American woman in law enforcement and or you know, harder for your colleagues, your, your Black women colleagues who are out on the streets trying to maintain some law and order? I definitely do. I think in general, any woman trying to uh, make their way in a male-dominated field is going to have a hard time. And historically, Black females have had a really tough time making it through the hiring process and being successful on police departments. Not to say that it hasn't happened. Some of the stories I heard about uh, some of my friends who were on the front lines of some of those protests, the Black females got the worst of it. The yelling, the the insults. What kinds of things? What kinds of things were they saying, if you recall or care to say? Uh, you're supposed to be on our side, Uncle Tom. I mean, you name it. I had some some of my friends over, and I just sit, let them sit on my couch and cry. I mean, it just broke my heart for them because my group of friends, we all join to make this city a better place to live for us, for the citizens, for our kids, and. To know that they care so much just to be treated like they were, um, you know, to be assaulted, spit on, it was just really, really disheartening. I know some of your good friends who are on the force and thought about them too, you know, as all of these things were going on. How, as African American women, do you try to make a change and an impact? I mean, because look, I, let's just. <laughs> Let's just be candid. There's a whole category of folks who don't like Black women telling them nothing anytime, anyhow. They don't like Black women in authority. Uh, sometimes folks just got a problem with it, regardless mm -hmm. of the type of authority it is. Not everybody. Some folks just got a problem with it. Uh, they think that it is not our place Yes. Um, to to speak to them. So uh, how do you manage that on the streets? Because look, on the one hand, you are there to protect and serve. You are a, an authority figure with respect, but you don't want to escalate, right? And mm -hmm. so if life for Black women who are police officers is kind of resembles life for Black women in other situations, mm -hmm. people are going to step to you in situations where they might not step uh, to your male colleagues or, or your white colleagues. How do they balance that tension on the street? I think it's really about the same um, as how they do in their personal lives. I mean, there's a way to be assertive and get your point across in a respectful way, in a professional way, but tell somebody what's going to be what. And so you do that, you just learn to do that tactfully. And obviously there comes a point to where uh, it's it's time to stop talking and either they're going to do what you, you ask them to do or they're not. And then, but I think, you know, our communication skills and the fact that we know the community Sometimes you just got to talk to them like you would any other place. You just have to sometimes get on their level and just make them understand, listen, I know what you're going through or I understand or let them know that you you sympathize or empathize with them. But for whatever reason, we're here and we have to solve a problem. So you just have to try to appeal to them in the same way that you would in your personal life. Mm -hmm. um, listen, there's an issue and we have to resolve it. 
and we're not going to leave until we resolve it. So you'll get complained on by your peers, by the citizens. But usually if your intent is good and pure, you come out on top on that. Let's talk also about some of the really tricky situations in which police officers can find themselves. You know, we in the public often end up kind of Monday morning quarterbacking what happens. But by the same token, there are often sometimes situations where if you look at the objective facts, they are troubling. No-knock warrants, very broadly. Police officer can come in your house without announcing him or herself, make their presence known, and sometimes take action, which can be lethal action. I'm not going to ask you to defend any police officer, you know, who was in any kind of situation. I don't think that that's um, a fair, reasonable basis for this discussion. But I will ask you to describe from your perspective, what are the circumstances where that makes sense? What are the circumstances where, in your view, a police officer would be justified in executing a no-knock warrant. You're just busting in the door and coming into my house. When and why? The easiest example I can think of is like if if they're serving a no-knock warrant on a drug house and they think that, you know, if we announce ourselves, they're going to go dump all the drugs down the toilet, that type of thing. That's usually the purpose of a no-knock warrant is to keep evidence from being destroyed. Again, I don't have any personal knowledge about recent events, but just in general, that's what they're for. So can that be tricky? Absolutely. I know as an officer, if someone came and kicked through my door, the first thing I'm doing is grabbing my gun. That's a natural reaction. So that's why it's so very important for those specialized units to have their facts straight, all their paperwork right, make sure they have the right place that they're supposed to be at. And then I guess you just have to weigh, could something bad happen if we come in unannounced versus what could possibly be destroyed that we can deal with by just knocking and announcing? You are acting major of the Human Resources Division, Marissa. Mm -hmm. Tell us how you discipline a police officer who you think has crossed the line. And first explain how it happens. Would it be something that you see, or let's just say that there's a report from the community Somebody says, Officer X was way too aggressive. I have video. He said these things to my son. I'm just making this up. Mm -hmm. That that lands on your desk. What happens next? So there's a couple of different ways that that can be handled. We have what's called an Office of Community Complaints um, that is separate from the police department. So if I was treated that way and I wanted to make a complaint, I would go. uh, There's several different ways you can file a complaint. Uh, But I would go into that office, I would fill out the paperwork, and then that office looks at it and determines if it needs to be looked at further by our internal affairs unit. And so once all that is done, they come back with the finding, and then it is sent through their chain, that officer's chain of command. So it goes kind of up and back down to the supervisor of that officer. And the supervisor goes through the whole complaint sees what the detectives found out during the investigation, and then they make their recommendation on what should happen. That's the way that it used to be. We just changed our disciplinary process. And so there was some concern about like some disparate treatment uh, as far as like discipline. This officer did this. Officer A did this. Officer B did the same thing. But Officer A only got one suspension day. Officer B got 10. So in an effort to try to be fair across the board, 
they developed what's called an accountability and discipline coordinator. So now all discipline goes through one chain of command. There's a major, a captain, and a sergeant. So you have these three people looking at all, looking at and handling all discipline. So that's an effort to try to just make sure that everyone is being treated fairly. If something is initiated, say I saw one of my sergeants do something that was inappropriate and I thought the disciplinary process needed to be started, I would write up a report and send it over to the the disciplinary coordinator and then they look at it and make a decision on what they're going to do. So the process, they have sped up the process, which is good because you don't have officers waiting two years to find out what, you know, they made a mistake. And so now they're waiting two years to figure out what's going to happen to them. So the labor unions kind of came in and, and worked with the department to make sure that that process was fair, but also holds people accountable. Well, one of the things that you hear said when people talk about incidents where kind of at least ostensibly or on its face, a police officer seems to have acted with undue force. You know, one thing that people say is, oh, there's, you know, just a few bad apples. A bad apple with a badge and a gun can do an incredible amount of damage. How do you weed them out? How do police officers weed out these folks uh, before they can escalate, you know, before they end up with, uh, you know, victimizing someone who we who ends up dead, who we watch on the news, who we see on the news? There are a lot of questions in this long question. Thank you, Captain Cousin. You're so <laughs> in all seriousness, do you think that the mechanism for weeding out the bad folks is effective? I think it's gotten better. So one thing that we did do is establish an anonymous HR complaint line so that, say, an officer sees another officer doing something inappropriate. They can report it. And now that we have body cameras and we have car cameras and there's all sorts of ways to check up on officers and what they're doing. Initially, how do we weed them out? All officers, we are all responsible for how we act and how we treat people. So if I see someone treating someone wrongly by talking to them or using excessive force and I don't stop it, I'm wrong as well. So what we've tried to instill in our officers is that, you know, if you see your friend, if you see your partner going down a bad path, stop them. It's okay. You go intervene, you take over, you know, you, you're mad, you just fought a suspect and now you're amped up and they're, you know, maybe they're still running their mouth or something. I don't know. But you see that your partner's still amped up. Go over, tap them out. Hey, I got this. Make them walk away. Or if, you know, there's a verbal confrontation and you see that, you know, there's an officer getting out of hand and starting to be unprofessional, you have to step in and say something. And sometimes that can be a scary thing for officers. But I tell you, since being in the human resources division, I've seen another side of this where a lot more gets reported what I ever knew, which is, I mean, it's encouraging to me that there are officers who one who are out there for the right reasons and um, are trying to hold people accountable. It's also up to the supervisors. You have to be supervising your people and knowing what they're doing. Oftentimes, if you have an officer that is verbally abusing someone or being heavy handed with someone, it's not their first time. So you need to know your officers, who works for you, what are their tendencies? And you know, if you don't handle that, then you can be held liable for their uh, behavior. When you talk about approaching a partner who may be crossing the line, 
I imagine that it takes that same sort of delicacy and subtlety that you're talking about when you're dealing with someone in the community. Because, you know, I mean, this is somebody whose life is in your hands, who has your life in their hands. People are going to get heated if they're out in the streets. I mean, I would think that even the best personality, I'm not talking about the bad apple. I'm talking about you know, I imagine there are good people who sometimes overreact just because of the adrenaline. So if you want to take something down, yeah, I, I would think you have to do it pretty gently. Um, do you feel like police officers have enough training in all of these subtleties of de-escalation and communicating and talking in non-threatening you know, way? I mean, are you all really trained for that or do you have to come to the table knowing a little bit about how to act in the best case scenario. Yes, to both of those. I think <laughs> I think it always helps if you become a police officer in your first conflict that you get this in your life, you're trying to handle it as a police officer, it's probably not going to go well. It's not, a good, no. it's not a good idea for this to be your first high right. pressure situation. So in their training, they can get pretty heated, which it should because we want to see how they react. They do get a lot of that training in the academy. Now, this goes back to, again, you get seven months of intensive training at our academy and then you go out on the streets. And then the only other like refresher that you may get is a one or two hour block and in service the next year. And, and so unless you can get to a specialized training, like, you know, a de-escalation or how to handle aggressive behavior or something like that, like any other skill, it depletes, it wanes. So unless you're practicing this skill over and over, that's why sometimes the tenured officers, if they jump in and kind of help these younger officers, because they've done it, the, the police calls, they're not the same, but they are like the general tone, the general, oh, we're getting called to this house again. Okay, well, I know how to talk to people, so we're just going to go figure it out. The training is huge and the continued training is huge because it's a perishable skill, just like anything else. How do your colleagues see you, Marissa? (laughs) Uh, That's a great question. I think, so my path was a little different on the department. Um, Again, I was the first female uh, defensive tactics instructor for our department. And I got started in that. When I was in the academy, the sergeant there, I guess he thought I had potential. I didn't think he liked me, but he, because he was always on me. And I felt like he didn't tell me how to correct what I was doing wrong, but he's the one who got me into uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And so I started doing that. I started training with him and uh, he saw something in me and told me I needed to come work for him the academy, which was pretty much unheard of with three years on the department. It was just not something that happened. And then I was a female, so I had things to prove. But what people didn't know is before I did that, in our situational training with the recruits, I would fight the recruits. I'm I'm one of very few fighters. We may have another one now, but it's been a long time. I've been the only female fighter for a long time. So once people figured out that I could fight, and that I could teach them things, I think I gained a little bit of respect. And so, you know, it's funny, after being promoted to captain, and I was working the midnight shift, I had one guy come up to me and describe fight that he had with me and how I embarrassed him. And I mean, I I didn't remember it. And I felt so bad. Because you know, when I do that, it's not, the goal is not to embarrass them. The goal is to make them draw on their training 
if they can control me and I know what they're doing, then they're going to be okay on the street. So that that's just the thing. You know, they look at me, some I've had people look at me and they kind of laugh and like you, but you know, it, it's just, I'd rather them learn the lesson in the academy than out on the street. Our academy is pretty good about ramping up the training and, and seeing what people what kind of skills they have under pressure. So it's a lot of fun. Speaking of fun and speaking of Brazilian jujitsu, <laughs> I happen to have information that this is something that you do for fun. This is just part of what you do to uh, train your colleagues and young up and comers. And everybody, please note, she was the first woman uh, to receive this certification in her department. Correct, Marissa? Did I get that right? Yes. The first the woman first, to get the. Yeah, the first female. So, She's the, the, the first female to be a defensive tactics instructor, but she also does this for fun. And this is my way of saying, friends, my cousin will hurt you. She will straight up hurt you. And I'm not talking about with the uniform. I'm just saying if she's hanging yeah. out, yeah, like yeah, just yeah. hanging out in civilian clothes with no weapons but her hands, she will hurt you. How long have you been doing? And I'm going to actually, when we air the video, I'm going to mm -hmm. grab some, I'm going to grab a clip from you of you like hurting somebody. <laughs> <laughs> How long have you been doing that, Marissa? Tell us about your self-defense background, because more and more women, I think now in particular, are talking about learning how to protect themselves. What made you, I was separate from the you know, your, your work as a, as an officer, what draws you to uh, that type of self-defense? There is, this may sound crazy, but there is something so calming about getting twisted up in a pretzel on the mat. I mean, it really humbles you and it just is such a great outlet. And I miss it because, because of the position that I'm in and the duties that I have now, I don't get to train like I used to. And I miss it a lot because it is just such a, a humbling experience. And you really learn yourself when you're out there by yourself on the mat trying to survive. So to me, I'm a small female. Um, and when I was introduced to this, I was like, wow, I can be successful against someone who's bigger than me if I get knocked down. And it's part of the reason why I started my company. I, I go out and teach self-defense now. I have a lot of ladies, but I, I don't exclude the men because some people, you know, it's just really empowering when you can walk you know, down the street or walk to your car with your head up knowing that, okay, I, I can protect myself. I teach at several different places. Um, I'm an adjunct prof professor at a community college here. I'm a national trainer with the National Law Enforcement Training Center. I just really take pride in empowering people to kind of stand up for themselves and just have respect for themselves and know that they don't have to be a victim. Here, here, Captain <laughs> Barnes. Also, I'll note for the record, I'm glad I never made you mad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we go, and again, thank you for thank you for doing this. Absolutely, um, what a family we have! It's so much fun being in this family. Come on, my podcast. I know. Let's talk about policing. <laughs> Just come on, answer for the whole. Per I know, girl. Um, I, I I seriously appreciate you. Absolutely. Uh, you live in a world where you get to see so much of the darkness and people. Um, but I also know you and I know you to be a positive, optimistic person with a great energy and a very bright light. Uh, yes, friends, I told you it was my cousin. I'll need to be objective. But um, what makes you hopeful? You know, when you think about like when you have to balance the world you see and the world you see at work and the world you hear about from your colleagues and your colleagues who come back into the station after 
witnessing or seeing horrible things. How do you stay hopeful and what makes you hopeful? That really got tested, like me being hopeful during the protests the last couple of years. And it was just kind of like, what am I doing this for? I'm not going to make a difference. But at some point you have to realize if all the people who joined and are doing this job for the right reasons, if we all leave, then what happens? So we have to stay. We have to fight the good fight. I have to believe that the work that I'm doing today uh, will make a difference down the road. So I kind of concentrate on my circle of influence and make the positive changes that I can there. And I know I probably won't see the effects of the things that I'm doing in my career, but I'm hoping that, you know, these young officers that are coming on today and in the future will see a a different way of policing and know that I want them to still have that, uh, that passion for coming in and wanting to help people and being here for the right reason despite all the negative the negativity that can be thrown at you cuz because it can be really hard what i did notice during those times that really helped me stay hopeful are the people who are not really loud about it but that come out and say hey we support you we know you're out here doing the right thing they buy you a drink at quick trip or whatever just it's just you know getting little nice notes from kids on the car i mean it's just the really small things to make you know that you're out here for the right reasons and that we got to stay out here. We can't just walk away because it got hard and our resolve gets tested. That's okay. That's what, I mean, we're going to come back and we come back day after day after day. So that's what we're going to do. Well, I appreciate you. you. Seriously. I appreciate you, not just as a close family member and somebody I love, but I appreciate the work you do. I thank you for your service and drinks on me (laughs) when you are next in town. Thank you so much, Captain Marissa Barnes, Kansas City, Missouri Police Department, and also my cousin who graciously showed up and let me bend her ear about some things policing. I do appreciate you. Thank you so much, Marissa, for being here. My pleasure. 